brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. How's everything going, everyone? This show is brought to you by Airdrop. Airdrop is a new section on Crate Club where you can find essential gear and killer apparel that you can buy separately from our monthly and quarterly club subscriptions. There's some great stuff on there that's heavily discounted, but a lot of these items sell out quick. Um, Like that tactical pen, those are gone. Uh, so you really got to act now. For example, we've got a few more Crate Club custom NFW watches left. Cry Precision Ballistic Soft Armor inserts and those cool Crate Club fishing spears. It's up on its own section on CrateClub.us, the uh, store tab. Or you can go to store.crateclub.us and it's all right there to check out. That's store.crateclub.us. Tons of gear you're going to love right there on Airdrop. I'm Ian Scotto. It's just me this episode um, with our guest, of course, Richard Jellerson. But Jack is out. He'll be back hopefully next episode. Uh, I just know he's uh, not doing great at the moment, uh, but he should be back in action in just a couple of days. I know he's excited for this interview, but this should be a good one regardless. Uh, Richard's story is a really interesting one. So, uh, yeah, nothing uh, really going on that uh, I need to update you guys on over the last few days. I did watch... Some of you are going to laugh. I did, I did uh, watch In the Army Now with Pauly Shore and Andy Dick. Uh, and I love Pauly Shore's work. I wasn't sure if I've ever seen this before. It's it's on Netflix if you want to watch it. I've heard of it, and I remember it coming out and all that in the 90s, but I'm not sure if I ever watched it. If I did, it's been so long that I forgot, and I laughed my balls off. It is a hilarious movie. And it's probably the only military movie that's dedicated to uh, the Army Reserve. So uh, I don't know. I mean, there there might be. I'm not a movie guy, so there might be another movie with the Army Reserve. But I mean, I feel like you have to do comedy uh, on that one, you know, just because of of the nature of it. You're you're kind of going to downplay what those guys do and make it funny, and and they did. And, And I, I I do recommend you check it out. There could be other Army Reserve movies. I, I really don't know. Uh, if you do, you could feel free to tweet me at Ian Scotto. But uh, In the Army Now is highly recommended. So because of that, I was on a whole Paulie Shore kick after that. And I watched the documentary that he has, which is up on Amazon Prime. And it's called Paulie Shore Stands Alone. And it's really very much about like the unglamorous life of being a stand-up comedian at his level. So he's playing in middle America at these places that aren't even necessarily comedy venues. And, uh, 
he does pack them out. See, it's an interesting thing. I've noticed this when I go to shows outside of New York in like the Pennsylvania area compared to New York. In New York City, in order to like sell out a venue of any type, you have to be A-list because there's always something going on. But if you go to rural America somewhere, you could sell out, you know, hundreds of seats, which he does, which you'll see in the documentary. And it reminds me, I'm a huge fan of the band Dope. I saw Dope play the Croc Rock in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which is no longer there. And it was packed, absolutely packed. All these people there to see them. And I think part of it goes to that there's probably just not as much to do in Allentown, Pennsylvania, to be completely honest. And just a few months later, I saw them play Webster Hall, the Marlin Room in New York City, and it was literally maybe 12 people there. And Edsel Dope even commented that he was like, we're having a good time, but this is kind of pathetic. Maybe you guys could tell uh, a friend to come next time that we play here. So I I thought um, the documentary played into that whole world of if you're playing somewhere in Nebraska, you could sell it out. And Paulie Shore does play those local Los Angeles venues and, and at times comes to New York City. But in order to like really pack out a crowd, he has to go to these middle America venues where he's very much celebrated uh, and in these very small towns where there's not a whole lot to do. So it was interesting. I watched that last night. It's uh, Paulie Shore stands alone. But uh, with that, I'm going to get over to Richard Jellison, who did a documentary that's uh, of much greater importance, to be honest, called A Solemn Promise, America's Missing in Action, about our men missing in action. 82,000 of them, which I was unaware of that statistic. And this guy's uh, military career and also just what he's done since is pretty incredible. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to get right over to Richard Jellerson and uh, hope you guys enjoy. So as promised for the first time on the podcast, Richard Jellerson, Army helicopter pilot and Vietnam veteran who served with the 116th Assault Helicopter Company, uh, in his first tour, and then his second Vietnam tour as General Abrams' personal pilot. He's the author of Pan Am Flight 001, uh, about the round-world flight he took before returning home on his second tour of duty, and the director of A Solemn Promise, America's Missing in Action, as well as several other films which we could talk about, uh, and we'll get into all of it. Uh, a Solemn Promise is available at storytellerfilms.tv. And I originally was made aware of you, Richard, through our uh, past guest, Mark Yablanca. Uh So how do you, how, how do you yeah. guys know each other? You know, um, I was introduced to him by a couple of mutual friends, and um, he has been, he was on the advisory board for that film and has been a huge help in mentoring me through the process of writing my first book. So... He is a good guy and yeah. good author, good books. Yup, Vietnam Bao Chi, which we uh, recommend everybody picks up. So I, I think before we even get into this great film about America's MIA, as well as your book, uh, it'd be interesting to get into your background in Vietnam and uh, serving as an Army helicopter pilot. People would probably love to hear about uh, someone who served as an assault helicopter pilot <clears throat> during that time. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to get into your backstory. The interesting thing about, uh, I did a film for the History Channel called yep. Helicopter Warfare in Vietnam. Yes, I was going to mention and, that among like several other films. <clears throat> I have them all listed here, which people can see on the website, but yeah. Yeah, and, and what I did, I interviewed a lot of uh, uh, air crew members, crew chiefs, door gunners, pilots. And the interesting thing about the pilots is they had the same story as I did. 
Uh, was not doing well in college, having way too much fun. Knew I was going to get drafted, but always wanted to learn how to fly. So, and the Army had a, a need for helicopter pilots at that point. So I got accepted and trained, and uh, knowing that at the end of the year of flight school that I was going to be going to Vietnam, uh, and did end up at the 116th, which it was an assault helicopter company, which means we picked up troops and inserted them into combat situations and went back to pick them up and move them to a different area. And a lot of medevac missions, a lot of medevacs. Uh, <clears throat> even though there were medevac uh, units, we were already there, already in the fray. So if there was wounded, we would uh, pick them up and take them to the hospitals. Some memories there that are just seared into my memory. So, um, but it was uh, we flew sometimes. Uh, I think my log shows that one day I flew thirteen and a half hours. Hmm. And uh, for a nineteen to twenty year old kid, it was pretty exciting, but also traumatizing in many respects. Um, and I just after my towards the end of my first tour, I ended up flying um, a two star general. And when he went home, uh, he recommended me to General Abrams. So first tour was kind of uh, combat and not very civilized. And the second tour, I was flying the four-star in charge of the entire war. Uh, and it was mostly, it was VIP flying. So. Yeah. Well, I, I know your book is specifically about the Pan Am flight, but I'm sure saying that you have these great stories um, with the 116th Assault Helicopter Company. A any stories that you could tell us? Because this audience loves to hear that. Um, flying combat in Vietnam was, uh, at first when you get there, you're, you can't believe you're in that situation. Um, and you're scared. But the funny thing is, after you've done it for a few days or a little longer, you can't afford to be scared anymore. You've just got to do the job. And uh, we would fly into, um, in a flight of nine Hueys with troops on board, we would fly into a landing zone where we would be taking fire. And uh, <clears throat> our guns are shooting back, and you're just hoping they don't hit you or a vital part of the ship. And uh, after a bit, it just gets to be, well, I can't afford to be scared, so I'm just going to do my job. And um, you have to go... And that's in the book. You have to go to a very dark place in your heart to get through those those tours. Um, the savagery and the carnage that you see every day is just, it's overwhelming. <clears throat> so pretty soon you stop um, um, letting it in. You just have to close down emotionally. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people who do go to combat, whether it was in Vietnam or our wars today, um, get PTSD. Any day in particular that was overwhelming for you? <laughs> Several, but uh, they all kind of blend in uh, together. I, I remember, and this is in the book as well, my very first uh, medevac mission. As it happens, uh, a squad leader got on board my aircraft along with, uh, I think, five, uh, five troops. And um, I was what they called tail end Charlie. I was the last flight. As a brand new aircraft commander, they want you, they're not really sure yet how good a pilot you are for formations. So you would fly the last, the last bird in a flight of nine or a flight of 
five sometimes as eagle flights. Dropped them off. We're, we're taking fire, and I we lift off to leave that landing zone and get a call from the troops on the ground. They've already had somebody that was wounded. And the other thing about tail end, Charlie, is you are the bird that breaks off for medevacs because you don't have to leave the flight. You just, well, you leave the flight, but you're not really part of it as the last ship. And uh, flew back in, and um, it turns out that that squad leader was the one who was wounded and had both of his legs had been blown off. Mm. So, uh, and I, I, I remember that I, and I think this is in the book as well, that we had a uh, hospital, uh, medevac pad, actually, a, a field hospital, only about 20, 20 some uh, miles away. And I, my first medevac, I thought the only thing important is, is to get this, get this guy to a hospital. So I pushed it all the way up as fast as the helicopter would go and uh, actually never even climbed. I kept it low level so I wouldn't waste any time. And uh, I, the interesting thing about when you drop wounded off, you don't, know, you don't ever know what happened to them after that. Um, so one of the little torments I have when I go to the VA hospital, because I, I did get uh, cancer uh, from Agent Orange, so the VA took care of that, but... Mm. One of the little tortures I have is that uh, I'll go to the VA hospital and see guys with uh, in a wheelchair with no legs, and you just I, you know, I always wonder if that was somebody that I picked up. Yeah. So, um, anyway, there's that's probably the most significant story, and the book is really about it is about my flight around the world, kind of decompressing after my second tour. But it's really about the healing that I, matter of fact, that's what it's called, the healing Pan American Flight One. Yep. Um, people adopted me, more or less. I think because I was traveling alone. And uh, every country I stopped in, uh, people just kind of brought me into their lives. And uh, I think that's always started a, a healing process. Yeah. And we'll get into that healing process. Uh, but I, I'm wondering, actually, at what point did you realize? <clears throat> that you developed Agent Orange, because for many guys, it's, you know, decades later, and they notice certain symptoms or certain crazy things happen in their lives. It was, <clears throat> it was 1995, and uh, uh, my stepdad was a brilliant surgeon, and at Thanksgiving dinner, he just noticed that uh, uh, my, my neck was asymmetrical. There was a swelling, and he wanted to, so he said, after dinner, I want to see you, and uh, he found that the lymph nodes had been were swollen and even though he had a medical practice and i had medical insurance he said go to the va he i think he suspected that it was agent orange and uh 1995 i think i went uh, through chemo and radiation and it has never come back so i'm a fan of the va for sure i mean that's that's amazing to hear yeah they're good they really are. They take a lot of grief, and there are some problems that they've had, but for the most part, they're a great organization. And it sounds like you didn't suffer some of the same consequences as your brothers. I mean, because I do know of people who uh, come back with Agent Orange, and then they have kids, and kids are born with all sorts of disabilities, and that's when they realize that this is what they got. I, I, I'm aware of that. And actually, I tried to do a documentary about uh, Agent Orange in Vietnam, because um, it's been in their um, 
water for years now. Yeah. And uh, I read someplace that uh, they have more malformed children than any other country around there. And I believe it's connected to Agent Orange. Yeah, I mean, it I sounds guess. like a logical connection to make. <clears throat> it, it does, yeah. But couldn't get anybody behind that. So I still think it would be an important film to do, but um, I'm not sure how to make it happen. Yeah. There's definitely, you know, I think the interest out there in the community and also people who need to be educated on it. Um, but get, getting into the book, as you were saying about Pan Am Flight 001, uh, do you want to talk about the flight itself and then get into the healing, as you were saying? I think people would love to hear about that and kind of get a teaser of, of what it's all about before they pick up the book. You know, it was a wonderful idea as a business. You could buy a ticket on Pan American Flight 1, and it was good for a year. It was very much like a Eurorail pass. You could uh, leave one country and fly to the next and stay there for as long as you felt like it. Uh, and when you felt like moving on, you just wait for the next Pan Am Flight 1 to come through that um, city and <clears throat> get back on. Uh, it, Like I said, it was like a Eurorail pass for a year, and it went through, I think, about... 20, 19 or 20 countries. I know I visited 15 to 16 of them. And again, I think because I was by myself, um, uh, people would just introduce themselves or you'd go to a restaurant in Europe and you can't have the whole table to yourself. If they're busy, maitre d' will introduce you to somebody that also somebody single and you make a new friend. So uh, it was a wonderful thing to do to see the planet. And what I didn't realize when I started out on it was that I was, I needed healing. And if you look at war as the absence of humanity, um, humanity just kind of embraced me. And over that, over that period of seven or eight months that I was gone, just, uh, welcomed me back to being a human. And, uh, I didn't certainly recognize it at first, but um, and that's that's how. As a matter of fact, that's why the book was written. I have a cousin who's a very successful screenwriter, and uh, he and I were talking one night. He said, "You know, you didn't seem to come back from Vietnam like a lot of guys that he knew that had a lot of baggage." And we were having a good single malt scotch, and we started to talk. And I told him the story of the the, the there was a young girl in Thailand that was selling uh, Coca-Cola and she wanted to talk about America. And I, I didn't really want to yet. I felt that I didn't understand what had happened to me and I wasn't really sure what was happening in America. And, uh, but she had to hear about it. She wanted to talk about it. So, uh, and Todd Maddox, my cousin just said, my gosh, what else happened? And I started, I hadn't thought about it as a healing process. But as we started to go through, um, notes that I had taken, um, it became apparent that I had been, um, more or less, uh, pulled back into humanity to heal. Um, the interesting thing about the combat stories, cause I, I wanted this story, the book to be about healing, but getting into it, I realized I can't really talk about healing unless I, show people uh, the savages, uh, savages of war. And as it happens, when I came back and went back to college and 
got in a creative writing class and the professor had me write, uh, he said, write what you know about, which after coming back from Vietnam, it was strictly, that's all I did know about. Yeah. And I wrote uh, a lot of short stories, never did anything with them, uh, got a good grade in the class and then just put them away. And when this uh, mission to write this book came up, I thought, well, let's pull them out. Maybe that'll help people understand what it was like and why I needed to heal. Um, so that was really the genesis of that story and why it got written. So what, if, as you said that you, you didn't really know you were going through a healing process as it was happening, what inspired you to actually take this flight as opposed to going the normal route of just going home in between your tours? Yes. Uh, actually, if you remember that time, uh, America was at, at war with itself very uh, divided and um, protests and all of that. And um, we weren't as Vietnam uh, soldiers welcomed yeah. back to the country. Yes. And um, I wasn't, uh, cause I, I'd, I'd been in touch with guys who had been sent home and, you know, wrote back about what it was like. And um, I just thought, well, I'm not sure I want to go back there yet. And the other part of it was, it was just an adventure, really. At, at first, it was this wonderful flight that I could go see the entire planet. And I was, you know, as I left Vietnam, I think it was 21. And uh, I just felt like, let's go see the planet. Um, so uh, between tours, the Army actually bought that first Pan American flight one. Um, and that was for a 30-day leave between tours, so I got on it and went around the entire planet in 30 days. And that, I think, is what led me to believe I should slow down and take the trip again. So um, very exciting to go some some of the... I, there's a couple of places I wouldn't go again, <laughs> uh, like Iran and yeah. Pakistan. But um, And I probably, at this point, with the world the way it is, I, I don't think I'd go by myself ever again. Yeah. Um, yeah, just there, the, the world's changed that much, but, uh, what an absolute adventure for a kid, 21 years old oh, as Vietnam be. was. Yeah. Did, did it get lonely taking this flight? I mean, I'm a single guy. I live alone. I have taken vacations alone, but it's, you know, a week at a time. Uh, I couldn't imagine being a, a, alone in the world, uh, nowhere near anyone that, you know, for that length of time. That's, it's a, it's gotta be an experience. Well, it was, but I, my makeup is such that I don't mind being alone. But yeah. the other thing is I didn't really get a chance to be lonely because, as I said, people just kept, uh, they'd always want to talk to you. And uh, I guess you, I, I looked like a soldier. I'm sure my haircut and out-of-date clothes led everybody to believe I was a soldier, and they wanted to know what has been going on. So people just kept prying into my life, and even sitting on a plane, the guy next to you would want to, talk to you. And, uh, like I said, at the restaurants, you didn't really get a chance if you were by yourself to be alone. Um, and then I'd meet people and we'd start talking. And some of these, um, folks that I met, <clears throat> uh, I would hang with them for, <laughs> um, a few days. Yeah. Uh, they just kept saying, well, we're going to dinner here somewhere tonight. Why don't you join us? And um, as you get to know them, I just picked up friends almost everywhere I went um, from 
total stranger to friends sometimes only took a, um, an hour-long dinner. I just didn't get a chance to be uh, lonely, really. Yeah. Do, do and, you still uh, talk to anybody that, that you met on, on that flight or, or that you met during that trip, I should say? No, I don't. I sometimes didn't even, and, and this is in the book too, I, I sometimes don't even remember their names, just the experience. Um, uh, um, I did, uh, for the film Solemn Promise, interview a gentleman that was at uh, Cam Duck, which was an incredibly fierce battle. Uh, Bill Wright, he uh, was awarded the Silver Star for what he did at Cam Duck. And uh, as it happens, one of these people I met uh, on Pan Am Flight One was a, a guy returning from uh, Vietnam who had been wounded at Cam Duc. But that was those two experiences are like 50 years apart. Um, so, but Bill is the only one that I talked to from that uh, that battle. Um, uh, one of my very good friends is a, a guy named Vern Estes who was. Uh, my detachment commander uh, when I was flying the four star, both four stars um, had their own aircraft and their own crews. And uh, Vern was a very uh, senior warrant officer and master aviator. And he ran the detachment. There was only five pilots, uh, two per aircraft and a check pilot who could sub, who could come in um, if somebody was sick. And, um, he and I talk all the time. We've talked ever since we left. Uh, we don't very often talk about the war. We talk about the aviation, about, uh, flying. And, um, so he's the only one I've kept in touch with from that time. Got you. So, well, that's Pan Am flight 001, <clears throat> uh, the book that you have out. And I definitely recommend that people check that out. Uh, that's out now you can get it right on Amazon and, and pretty much anywhere else. Right. There are the big ones are Amazon and Barnes and Noble. They both yeah. carry the book, um, and there's about seven or eight others that distribute. I even had one person purchase the book in Sweden. <laughs> I, I that kind of came as a surprise, but <clears throat> um, so it is available on both of those Barnes and Noble and Amazon, and it's the Healing Pan American Flight Zero Zero One. Yeah, I mean, you never know. There's um, there's people who listen to this show, and I look at the statistics all around the world. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. There's people listening in just about every country. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm looking at it right here, the Healing Pan American Flight 001, and uh, pick that up, and we'll link to it in the, in the uh, description on softrepradio.com. Uh, but next, I want to get into the documentary that you have out, which I was checking out, and that is A Solemn Promise. It's available at storytellerfilms.tv, uh, A Solemn Promise, America's Missing in Action. And uh, before we get into it, do you have any personal experience with guys who went MIA? Oddly, none whatsoever. In my in the combat unit, the first tour, if one of our guys went down, we went and picked him up immediately. We never had an MIA while I was with the 116th. Um, <clears throat> but uh, when I did the History Channel film, I met a gentleman named Tom Lasser, who was also an Army helicopter pilot over there. And uh, after the film, we got to be friends. We'd meet for lunch once in a while. And one day he said, you know, if, uh, if you or I had been shot down over there, they'd still be looking for us. And I hadn't thought of it, but what you're, the solemn promise that's made to you as uh, someone going into combat is that you will not be left behind. 
And I started looking at it, and it's an incredibly powerful story. It's also one I think every American should hear about. Um, the, in it, these days, it's a little tough to find things to be truly proud of in this country with all the divisiveness. But this is something that we, we, we promised um, people being sent to combat that we would always come looking for you. Yeah. And we do. We, it's a promise we keep. Now, the uh, DPAA, the uh, POWMIA accounting uh, agency, it's a bureaucracy like all of our agencies in this country. And they make mistakes, but they are the people that I interviewed for that film are devout about their duty, about their obligation to find our missing in action. And when I started researching it and found out that we have over 82,000 MIAs from all the way back to World War II, I just, I couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe the stats and then I couldn't believe the story. But uh, <clears throat> so I decided that I was going to do a documentary film telling that story. And shortly after I got into it, I'm not sure how this happened, but a colonel at the Pentagon uh, from Department of Defense called me up one day and says, how come you haven't asked our help for your film? <laughs> and uh, legend in filmmakers is that uh, it's very difficult to get DOD to help you. So it was quite surprising. And they started feeding me um, stories. Once they found out, they vetted me to find out uh, how I would approach the story. And then they started, you know, we've got a family, the, the uh, agency meets with uh, families of MIAs uh, several times a year to update them. And they said, we've got one of those in, I think it was Oklahoma, uh, would you like to film it? And uh, so, yes, I did. And then they called up and said, um, a family of a Korean War MIA uh, is going, his remains have have been found, and uh, if the family okays it, would you like to film the ceremony at Arlington? And uh, they okayed it. Matter of fact, they loved it, and uh, uh, so we went to Arlington and filmed that segment. And uh, it is beautiful uh, when they find the remains of an MIA. Um, they are given a um, the entire military honor ceremony. It's just amazing. The, the caissons. Uh, horse-drawn caisson, um, and uh, the 21-gun salute. It's, it was truly beautiful, and um, I was very happy to have that, to capture that for the film. Um, and they do an incredibly good job of identifying remains because it just would be a, a painful experience to tell a family, we found your son or brother, and then find out it really wasn't them. But it was a very... Uh, powerful story, and it's something really uh, we as a country should be very proud of because uh, we're the only country that makes that promise and then keeps it. Yeah, I, I heard you say that <coughs> during the documentary, and I, I was unaware of that we're the only country that does say that. And then, as you also say, unfortunately, there's still 82,000 <coughs> remaining that, that are lost, and a lot of those guys yeah. from your era in Vietnam. You know, actually, less and less with every war. Most of that 82,000 is World War II. Hmm. Um, but, and, and we started off with about, I think it was 2,506 MIAs in Vietnam. And the last uh, number I saw was just over 1,600 uh, that have not still been found. Um, <clears throat> a funny story. 
I was trying to find uh, people to interview, families to interview uh, with an MIA from World War II. And of course, those are very, very old people now. And my uh, stepdad and mom had a medical practice in a little town called Blythe out on the Arizona River, uh, the Colorado River. And I was, I went out to see my mom and uh, uh, took her out to dinner. And I was so frustrated, I couldn't find anybody that had an MIA from World War II. And um, my mom says, well, I have a friend whose uh, uh, husband was a pilot, and he was shot down and never found from World War II. My mom and uh, my stepdad were military. They were in the military, and they traveled all over the world. So I'm thinking, well, she's probably got a friend that's in Belgium or something. I said, well, where's your, where's your friend? And um, she pointed um, off into a neighborhood and said, well, she lives right in there. <laughs> so... Uh, and I asked her why she didn't tell me. She said, well, I didn't think anybody would want to talk about it. The interesting thing that happened when I'd find a family to interview, they had been wanting to talk about this for, for a long time. Um, <clears throat> every one of the families I interviewed, I think there was three or four that made the final cut as interviews, but I talked to a lot of families about it. And it's a story that, um, an early title for that film was um, Collateral Damage, America's MIAs. And that came from interviews very term, and they felt like they were collateral damage. Um, uh, in, a, in a war. Yeah. Well, so. a thing that's that's interesting and and you know really sad about the film is kind of seeing the reactions of these family members and they're waiting for their family members and it's a it's a constant wait that just goes on and and you really capture that well uh thank you they um i was amazed at uh some of the interviews that people would uh, they've been carrying this burden with them forever and they'd talk, uh, try to describe their feelings. And then many, many times they would actually get choked up and, and break down uh, in the interview because it, it was that close to them. They, they looked for closure for decades. And uh, you can tell that it was still so important, so close to them because they couldn't get through the interview. We'd have to stop the film and um, let them recover. Um, um, it was a fascinating story. I'm glad we did it. It's, uh, it is available at the website, but also right now, uh, it's at, uh, Southern California PBS to see if they want to get involved with the film. So hopefully we'll they see. will. It, that seems like an appropriate <laughs> venue for it. And it's kind of done for that audience. And, uh, yeah, if, if people want to check it out and I'm sure a lot of this audience will want to, it's storytellerfilms.tv. And the film is a solemn promise. America is missing in action. And as I mentioned before, you've done quite a few other films looking at the website. Stalin's Voice, A Tale of a City, <clears throat> The Personal Experience, Helicopter Warfare in Vietnam, which is the one that you mentioned that you did for the History Channel, uh, One Last mm -hmm. Hit, Crack Cocaine, and The History of Army Aviation. So it's a lot of things, not just military history, but then also a documentary on the drug war. So uh you, you have a pretty wide array of subjects that you've tackled. And right now we're in pre-production on a film uh, on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, because they 
It's an amazing organization. When you watch TV at night, the weather report really is generated by NOAA. No, no matter how they portray it and talk about it, it, all this weather information comes from NOAA. It affects our agriculture, our planting, our storms, severe storms, extreme uh, uh, storms they have. This is the organization that has planes that fly through hurricanes. And they have satellites, planes, and ships all doing research and discovery all over the planet. Um, and they are, on the, they are the point of the spear on climate change <clears throat> and uh, discovering how that's affecting us and what possibly can be done about it and why it's happening. So it, originally I approached them to do just a, a film, uh, just a one-off. And uh, it looks like now it's going to be a, um, a six to seven part series, wow. uh, but we are in the very early stages of it. That'll be great to see. What what was the inspiration behind that? Uh, as a pilot and a, and a sailor as well, I've just always known that they were there, that that was the original source material for all the weather that we look at all over the planet. And um, was amazed that nobody knew about it. There, or almost nobody knows about it. So um, I, I did a solemn promise, went to um, uh, Smithsonian Channel. And uh, I got a wonderful email back from the vice president of programming, and she loved the film, but they weren't going to be doing anything military. However, if you're going to be doing something in science, um, please let us know. So uh, that's where we're going to probably take it first. Uh, we are in the pre-production. We're still working out contracts with NOAA, but they are all over it. Um, people, uh, friends of mine, filmmakers said, you know, they're not going to want it. They're a government agency. They really don't care about this, but... When I approached them and uh, started talking to them, they were just all over it about telling their story because nobody does know what they do. And their um, sister agency, NASA, gets all of the press. And, of course, NASA is a, a lot sexier organization, but yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, NOAA is important to, to they, you know, one-third of the crops in this country are uh, affected by NOAA's reports. So... And navigation uh, for both ships and planes, uh, they're just about mixed up with everything that we do every day. Excellent. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this audience will want to check that out. Uh, once again, the website is storytellerfilms.tv. Uh, this has been great, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of the fact that Mark Yablanca got us in touch. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry that Jack was out for this one because I think he'd probably have some good questions as well, but maybe we could follow up right. at some point. Um, any, anything else that you're working on that you want to let us know about? No, the book and, uh, the voyage of Noah is the currently the working title for that documentary. And, uh, that's, there's a couple of smaller projects that I am trying to do, but, that is really the focus of storyteller films at this point. So, awesome. and that's enough, by the way. Yeah, we'll we'll stay in touch and, and let us know when when that comes about, and we'll have you back on. Well, thank you, Ian. I appreciate that very much. Been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely, thank you, Richard. Great discussion there with Richard Jellerson. 
Of course, got to let you know, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash One Crate, the Pro Crate, and for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our Premium Crate. These are all available at CrateClub.us, and right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all SoftRep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on it now. That's crateclub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here like Jack Murphy, George Hand, Alex Hollings, Joe LaFave, and the many guest writers who pop up as well. Unlimited access to the newsrep on any device, uh, unlimited access to the app, join the War Room community, invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. Just look that up, SoftRep Radio. And our homepage is softrepradio.com, where you can see our full archive of shows. As always, keep up with us at SoftRep Radio as well. Uh, as I said, Jack will be back soon. I have some really big guests on the horizon, which I'm very excited for and that I think you guys will enjoy. Um, as always, you could follow us at SoftRep Radio. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Ian Scotto. SoftRep.radio at SoftRep.com, where we'll answer your emails. Big thanks to Richard Jellerson for coming on this episode. And uh, we'll be back with a new episode on Friday. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.